Imagine this. You're struggling to try to get your students to read. Every time you pull out a novel, all you hear is, I don't want to read this. Why do we have to read? Why are you doing this? You're so mean. Well, this week, we're going to talk to English teacher extraordinaire Colette Bennett as we discuss how can you build classroom libraries for independent reading and student choice. Welcome back to the Educator's Room Podcast, a place for educators everywhere, regardless of grade level or content area. Put down your grade books and grab a glass of wine. So I have a fairly extensive background working in grades 6 through 12 in the classroom and K-12 in curriculum. Wow. So one of the things I want to start with, you wrote a great article talking about read aside. And this was a couple of years ago. I read it. Um, but one of the things, and we'll have it in the show notes, guys. But one of the things when I read it, I hadn't heard of the book Read Aside. And so I'm assuming that before we go into talking about independent reading choice, independent reading and choice in reading, what is the current, in your eyes, what is the current state of reading in classrooms, 512, 612? What does it look like from your perspective since your extensive work? It's interesting you should bring up Read Aside because I think that's the book that kind of changed me. Mm. Came out, the book came out uh, in 2009 by Stenhouse Publishers mm-hmm. by Kelly Gallagher. And um, I've kind of been following Kelly uh, ever since. He um, talks about the systematic killing of the love of reading and the definition is often exacerbated by the inane, mind-numbing practices often found in school. And when I read that, I thought to myself, oh my God, I've been doing read aside with all of my students. And um, currently, I think there is some um, sort of uh, vibrations that are trying to change up um, what children are assigned to read. I think people are much more interested in having um, uh, independent choice for kids, but I don't think it's still uh, enough. I think uh, that read aside is still being practiced pretty seriously. And Mm -hmm. it, it really begins around fifth grade because up till about fifth grade, you still have a lot of choice in reading. Kids um, are able to pick what they would like to if they're doing um, like the Daily Five, which is independent reading. They, right. they can pick their leveled books. Um, and there is a fair amount of uh, choice that kids are allowed to do. But as to once you get past grade five, um, you end up with teachers choosing a lot of what students have to read. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely, um, I see that in mind because you're in Connecticut. I'm in Atlanta and we kind of have similar jobs, but this is something that I see um, in grades nine through 12. Teachers pick what they like to read and they expect students, male or female, to read them and be enthusiastic about it. So I have to ask before we talk about, and maybe this will go into as you talk about independent reading and student choice, what can we, what, how do we change that? Because I don't like to read what people tell me to read. I like to read what I want to read. So how does a teacher who's in, who's a seventh grade teacher, and she has this curriculum she has to follow, how does she allow students to want to read independently, regardless of their reading level, but also give them choice in what they read? Well, I think one of the things that um, 
Kelly Gallagher first talked about was that there wasn't enough in the classroom immediately for kids to read that was interesting. Mm. We're choosing what kids had to read, assigning it and giving it to the kid. And that would be um, what they would be reading. So, for example, if we were talking about ninth grade, you probably would be getting a copy of Of Mice and Men, which is a fabulous book. Right. The only book that you'd be handed. And I think um, that may have worked well enough um, years ago when I I believe that students either uh, complied or fake read very, very well. (laughs) Yes. That fake, but let me stop because that fake reading is is something that our kids are masters in. Yeah, they're very good at fake reading, and I think um, I think our we are raising a generation of, of students who um, like choice. I mean, from day one, they're offered, you know, what kind of iPhone do you want? Uh, what color do you want? How, what apps do you want to put on it? What do you and and they don't know any different. They don't know any difference um, in terms of choosing what they would like to wear, what they would like to uh, shop for. There's a myriad of things online for them to look at. Um, Choices all around them, and then they come into the school and we hand them one book. Yeah. That really uh, is not in line with, um, one, what they're used to in the real world, and two, it's not what works when you have a variety of uh, reading levels. And um, one book is hard to differentiate. Um, picking Of Mice and Men, even though it may be at a ninth grade reading level, or maybe even a little lower, I have a very transient school population with kids with yes. um, ELL or ESL. Yes they would have to read a very reduced version. And the question really is, if you're having them read reduced Steinbeck, well, you're just giving them a plot. Why would you even bother? So I think it's a bigger problem when you try and pick a book for a kid and create more problems. Whereas if you let kids choose, the, you, don't, you don't have those same kinds of problems. The right. kids have the problem of choice. But it's really a matter of control, I think, yes. for a lot of teachers. Want to know, um, in many cases, you know, what questions um, will I ask if I don't know the book? As opposed to ask, having the kids create their own questions on a book that they've chosen. Which is, if you already know the answer to the question, why are you asking it? Right. But a lot of that, that control is something that I've witnessed as a teacher myself, as an instructional coach. And now that I'm in administration, I see that control. And I think a lot of teachers confuse control with order. That if I don't have control, that if I allow a student to pick what they want to read, then I'm ultimately going to lose classroom management. And you're right, I'm going to not know the answer to something. But what I try to tell teachers is that, especially literacy teachers, is that that's the beauty of it because then you know your kids are thinking if they're having to ask questions that they can't go maybe to you and find the answer right off but that they're having to figure it out so school is going to start for my kids on Monday and let's say ninth grade 
they have to read the Odyssey. How does a teacher even begin the process or does the process start in the summer? How do you get ready that you know you have to teach the Odyssey, but how can you, how can you differentiate that piece? Like how do you, how can you give them choice when you know you have to cover this massive epic for students? The word there you just used is the word cover. <laughs> cover it. They're not, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that kids are going to pick up and read uh, happily, <laughs> the Odyssey. Um, and you are going to cover it in your curriculum. So it is going to be a piece that you are probably going to have to help them uh, through. It's not an easy piece depending on your translation. Right. Translation or... And it's, it comes to the point where you're thinking to yourself, all right, what is the purpose of giving this? I mean, the reason to read the Odyssey is, is that it's an epic right. pattern. And so what you want to do is teach kids, well, what's the pattern of this? You know, what do you see happening to this hero who steps out, who's called, the hero's call, and he comes out of where his level of comfort is and he has to go on this journey and over the course of the journey he runs into um, a series of complications and each complication either brings him uh, closer to self-awareness or not he has a mentor he gets an elixir <laughs> he meets the love of his life and then he he well he thinks at the moment there's the love of his life until he meets his wife to return home, but when he returns home, he returns wiser. There's no difference between the Odyssey and the Wizard of Oz. Correct. Yes. Let me ask you this. So, covering it. As an ELA teacher, when I first started teaching, I was under the impression that because the book was in my pacing guide, I had to cover it from top to bottom. However, as I started teaching, I started to say, so for example, if night was in the curriculum guide, I was going to make the kids read night from cover to cover. However, as I started teaching, I started to see that for some kids who had read night, I needed to pick another text or I needed to give them a different variety of text. How can teachers in the summer, because you've talked about this on your blog and guys, I'm going to put a link on her blog to in our show notes, but you talk about how you even secure text because a lot of kids will come in and they have no clue how to even pick what they want to read because they haven't been given that choice in so long. Yeah, that is, it's funny because in fourth grade, they can tell you exactly what to pick. And when you get to fifth grade, they don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like text is. Uh, but I do think it, it helps if, if you have been reading, I think, first off, you do have to read as a, as a teacher. Right. It's out there. But I think another thing to do is, um, and, and one of the things Kelly Gallagher talks about, is the book flood. You know, mm. you have books in your classroom, um, and you say to them, what are you interested in? Or have them sort of shop. In other words, one of the things we used to do was we put four or five books on a table, and we would have kids uh, on, on several different tables, and we'd have kids, like, do a quick uh, walkthrough and kind of uh, look at the different texts and then see if they thought there might be something that would be interesting to them. And then they would create sort of a list and we could say, um, what books look the most interesting to you? Um, as an English teacher, I would know maybe one or two of the books on each table and I might just give a quick little book talk. Mm. To see if 
there are book talks online about them because a lot of teachers will put have kids create little promotional videos and you might put those up. So the first thing to do is generate interest. There's a lot of good, the kids will choose a book by its cover and its length. There is no question. Mm -hmm. And that's not what they will do it the first time. But as they continue and become more comfortable with what they like, the best people to sell books are them are the kids. Right. Well, the kid will tell another kid, I really like this book, or this book really was awful, don't read it. And I found that, um, and I've used, sometimes I've used softwares like um, Goodreads or um, Safari, I've used to be a, uh, the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, that program. So I could have the kids sort of communicate online. I've also had them post um, reviews about books online so that they could share. But I think sometimes it's just a very casual thing. And it's the kind of thing you can start a class with. Um, Kelly Gallagher does this very interesting thing, and uh, he works with Penny Kettle also. Mm -hmm. And they would choose a series of books that kids could pick as book clubs, and they would read aloud um, the opening chapter or another chapter of the book that they thought was particularly interesting. And they would read probably for about three and a half minutes at the beginning of class. And everybody likes to be read to. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, uh, the minute I would pick up a book and start reading, every one of my students would quiet down. And there is something in our genes that makes us sort of sit and listen to the storyteller. And in doing that, you know, in, you know, two weeks, you know, 10 days, you can cover 10 chapters. Right. Um, and then you can also ask kids, what book are you reading? Would anybody get anything good that they're really reading and they want to share a really cool sentence, a really cool idea? Um, I think kids who come uh, to fifth grade and are encouraged will still have their habits from when they were a younger kid. The problem really happens when you get to 11th grade and you try to start um, offering independent reading to kids who haven't had that opportunity. And that does take some work because you have to um, think about what the kid might be interested in. My suggestion generally for boys is um, nonfiction pieces. Mm-hmm. Short fiction pieces. Right. Because uh, the last book they will have read is Hatchet by Gary Paulson. That's the last one they would have done. <laughs> usually, <laughs> and then they stop reading entirely. So it's kind of like, well, ask them what was the last book they read and why did they like it? And uh, see if you can find something that would meet that. And I guess one of the things that, because I, as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking in my mind as a teacher, I'm starting first semester, giving them choice. But I think... There's even some teachers who are saying, where do I even get the books? We have no books in our, the only books that we have are the classics and our textbooks. And so I know you have made a huge point of going to, well, tell us how you get your books because you have been collecting, collecting, collecting. So where do you find books to even start to give kids a choice? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a collector. Um, and I, I felt that at one point I had to put my money where my mouth was. And um, I noticed that a lot of the local libraries in our area were having book sales during the summer. And so I started to go to those book sales. And I noticed that if I went towards the end of the sale, they would be selling books 
um, you know, $5 a bag of books. Oh, wow. I would go and I'd start collecting um, books at book sales. And I also um, started to look at some of the local thrift stores where they would sell books for a dollar. They'd have a special, you know, two for a dollar. And I would look to see what titles there were. And I built my libraries in my classrooms on two levels. One, um, books that kids might want to read independently. And then two, books that could be companion pieces to things like The Odyssey. Mm -hmm. If they were reading The Odyssey, if you're forced to read The Odyssey, then maybe I would give them an adventure story. I might give them something like Climbing Everest, or I might go back to a Gary Paulson book, you know, of people who actually lived in the wilderness. Um, I might look for, uh, if I was doing Night, I might look and say, well, there's some other books here. Um, the Book Thief might be something you might be interested yes, in. Yes, yes. Great book. Whatever uh, topics we were covering, I would look to see if I could find books that sort of went with those. And I found um, that there were a number of really good books in these book sales because um, what would happen is uh, they would get the summer reading list. The parents would buy the books and no one, they would be barely read. And then they, when the kids left for college, they dumped them all in the Goodwill or to the library. And so I would be picking up books that um, we would normally be assigning and I could put in my classroom. So I actually ended up with a lot of you know, diary of a wimpy kid kind of book. <laughs> yes. And at the same time, I ended up with quite a number of copies of um, The Boy in Striped Pajamas or something of that nature that I could offer. So I had a variety. And um, once I started putting books in the classroom, kids started bringing in their own. Oh. Um, and there's also quite a bit of uh, material that kids can get online. Right. So they can read online materials. Our libraries in Connecticut, most of them have Overdrive, uh, which is a, a digital program. A lot of the schools have access to school library. You can get some of the books yes. digitally. And I think we're moving towards those platforms. Um, the good news about those platforms is that you can't see the length of the book, which is, you know... <laughs> Sometimes that's a good sell because you'll have a kid who will pick up Heart of Darkness because it's very short, and you're like, honey, that's a really hard book. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but it's only 90 pages. And you're like, okay, <laughs> come back to me next week. Right. <laughs> and let's see what happens. Right. <laughs> that's the kind of thing. Um, I think what I tried to do was make my libraries as diverse as I possibly could. Um, and I put in things that were unusual like I would put in um, a lot of animal books because a lot of kids like animal books yeah I would put in books about uh, travel I would put in books about um, uh, you know uh, chicken soup for the soul kind of books right uh, very short little pieces and some kids would like those and I would put in some you know those scary story books um, and uh, occasionally I put in some comic books because I thought they would be things that kids would like. So I would build these libraries and I didn't, um, when I built them, I didn't have a lot of room in the classroom. So we used um, library carts and I would put them on library carts, which um, 
I did convince people to buy. And I could move them from room to room so that it wasn't always uh, the book carts could move around a little bit and, uh, you know, rotate around in the building. And I think that's so interesting when you talk about putting your your money where your mouth is for a lot of us. And I'm guilty of this. We want our kids to read, but we don't provide them with the opportunities to pick things that are out of the norm. So I love the idea of going to book sales. I've also seen a lot of books for sale when you go to Goodwill. You find great books, fabulous books that have been in people's libraries and when they've decided to donate them. So I think that's great when you talk about using, putting your money where your mouth is, buying these one, $2 books. And another thing that really helped me was that I was always get a couple of kids throughout the year that would be willing to buy their own books. And they would always be willing to give me back those books. So before long, I had tons of books that kids could read. Um, and it, it spanned all genres, all eras. So I think that's great. So let's go a little bit into, we've talked about you know, the choice. We've talked about the research from um, Kelly Gallagher. What are some of the things, some of the the things that have came up when kids have been presented with choice that you've had to get them to hurdle over? Have there been any, like when you give the kids a choice and you do the book talk, what usually, what are some things that kids go, that they face that they're just like, I don't know if I can do this or what about this book? Is it sometimes is the too much choice overwhelming? Like what are some of those things? Um, well, I think so much, you know, when you, I, I speak about the 11th grader who's never had a chance to choose a book and then suddenly picks up diary of a wimpy kid. And you're thinking, is this the right move? You know? Right. Um, but I think what you need to do is talk to them about the book. Mm. The, one of the best things you can do with kids is to talk to them about what they're reading. And um, Penny Kettle, who does Book Love, and um, is, uh, has a number of videos where she uh, shows you in three minutes how you can um, talk to a kid about a book that you've never read. Oh, I like that. And you can just say, yeah, so tell me where you are in the book and uh, what's the best part or, you know, what are you having trouble with or tell me what's going on. And having a kid talk to you about the book, it's the kind of thing adults do. We talk to each other about books. You know, um, uh, let's face it, when, when um, there's a very popular title, people will say, oh, uh, you know, I, I noticed you're reading uh, whatever. You know, oh, great. Oh, you're in the middle of it. Well, wait, what do you think? Of? <laughs> I love it. I love it. And that makes kids excited about reading, right? Because many times no one has ever showed interest into what they're reading. And, and I think also those kinds of conversations are, are very much like when you're in a um, uh, elementary school, you do these running records and you're able to pick up how a kid can read very quickly by, by having them read a particular text. And you can hear their speed and you can get a sense of their comprehension. But we don't do that with our older students. And I think we still need to engage in some way of understanding what they're reading. Do they, do they actually understand this book? Is this book too much for them? Right. You can find that out by just having a, a nice conversation. And here's the other thing. You may be the only kid person to talk to that kid all day long. You're right. It may be talked at all day. Yes. 
you're having an adult conversation. And in this world where, you know, they've proven that the connection between a teacher and a student is so critically important. Three minutes with a kid is, is fabulous. I mean, so you have 30 kids in the class. It will take you 10 days to get to every kid. But you will have talked to every kid at least once a month. Right. In a very adult way. And I think kids need that, particularly at the higher level. And I think if they say, that's how you can find out, like, I hate this book. Well, what do you hate about it? I don't like to read. Well, why don't you? What did you like to read? What can I do to help? And those are the kinds of conversations that show that you're really genuinely interested as opposed to you didn't read pages one through 95. The quiz is tomorrow. You're going to fail. <laughs> yes. Kinds of conversations. One just puts the kid further away. Right. I don't believe that kids do not want to read. They do. They, they're very literate. They read and write all day. They would like more input. And I think if we are smart about how we engage them in different kinds of reading, we can increase their empathy for others, which is at the heart of all literature. You know, literature is not written by people who are winners. Literature is great literature is written by people from the outside observing the human experience. Oh, that is I, okay. I love that. Like that right there, because that speaks so much to the students that I serve that though, these are kids who you're right. They've never been spoken to like an adult, especially when you're talking nine twelve. they've always been spoken at and just that conversation, you know, did you like it? What didn't you like about it? Okay. You hate this book. What do you want? So, I mean, it's very, it's in a very, like you said, it's a very adult thing to do, but it also is starting, it's allowing them to understand how to have an adult conversation, how to respond um, and letting them know that you're right. Most people who are the great writers are badasses and they're not the perfect um, student. They, they have all these stories inside of them. So I love that. I'm sorry. I had to, that's that right there. I love that quote. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Yeah. You, your students, you're talking to them, you're giving them choice. How do you as a teacher manage the workload that's going to come when you have 30 kids in a classroom and 25 of them are reading different books? How do you manage that? What does that look like? What do projects look like? What do tests look like? How do I manage that on a day-to-day? That is that is the quandary because you could bury yourself and have them write uh, all these different te- you'd have to come up with a different test for each one right the other as I point out there are ways for you to have them show that they understand and still meet um, a certain level of criteria that could be quite common core like if, for example, you're saying the Odyssey, and I would point to you that the Odyssey is the same as any other story, you could come up with pretty interesting questions and say, how is your character changed by the end of this book? Provide evidence of the change. Now, as Odysseus has changed, and as he has come to accept himself, how has your character come to accept himself or herself? And so by asking the critical questions, not 
what happens on page 93 or right. what's the dragon's name in the hobbit or you know by coming up with questions that actually speak to what the author's trying to get at in other words um uh what kinds of challenges um are similar to uh the Scylla and the Charybdis mm. of what kind of uh, problems have they come into like the Scylla and the Charybdis of right. the Odyssey what dangerous choices has your character had to make so you can then use what you're doing as a whole class text but then you'd have 25 different responses to the same question mm. and, that, and that's a really good idea because that will not overwhelm a teacher Hello? Yeah, you disappear every now and then. I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. <laughs> so, that, and that won't overwhelm a teacher. What about, so one of the tricks that I found was making the assignments over particular standards. So highlighting two or three standards that could apply for all of the books and making the projects about that standard and then integrating the book into the standard. Have you ever done that? Uh, I think when you look at what is it that the standards are trying to get you to do, um, in other words, uh, I used to teach AP, uh, Advanced Placement English Literature. Yes. I found that the um, questions that they ask now in the Common Core are exactly the questions we would ask our students. You know, how does the author, uh, how is the author's purpose served by the style? What words contribute to the tone? Um, and that kind of thing. So I think you can create uh, questions and saying, you know, uh, choose three words that describe your uh, the, the chapter that you've just read and explain how those words, um, the tone or the mood uh, that the author has created, uh, give evidence as to how that has been created. So you're already hitting those text standard questions that right. you hit. Um, and also vocabulary words. You know, how is the vocabulary used? So it's really, um, once you step back from the very small um, questions that we tend to come up with and that you see on worksheets everywhere, you know, um, like who gives the Queen Mab speech in R Romeo and Juliet? Right. As opposed to what's the impression that Shakespeare wants to make using the Queen Mab speech? You can ask those kinds of questions about the text that they're in. Prove it. With what words did the author use? It just didn't spring out of their head fully formed. These were decisions. How did the author make those decisions? And what's the result? And I, and I think that's, that's so cool. That's, that's such a, a tool for teachers to master as they're trying to incorporate choice. Um, into their classrooms. Now, I have to ask you about independent reading. How do you, once you give them choice, once they've been given choice and they have these books and they've picked a book that they've connected with on some level, how do you get them to independent read? I know what I did in my classroom, but what have you found that works to getting our students set 612 to read independently? Um, I think kids who begin to read in school will continue. So you have to give up your time. You have to absolutely give up class time to read. And that's hard for people. Yes. 
getting everyone to settle down and to read is habit. And you have to build that habit. Now, I will say that doing it routinely makes it easier. And I will also say that not every kid will buy into it. So you have 30 kids and you have two who refuse to read. 28 kids are now reading for, and I would say it's at least 15 to 20 minutes whenever you do it. So you have that much time being used. So for the two kids who aren't doing it, they just have to be quiet and fake read. And I usually give them opportunities to read a lot of different things. Um, If they choose to fake read, I can't stop it. But what I noticed is that kids who will start reading in class will sometimes uh, will, will get so hooked that they'll continue on and they'll come in the next day and say, I finished. Is there another book like this? Mm. The other thing is, is that you have to kind of believe that it's going to work. And that's almost like being an actor on stage because you have an audience and you have to convince them And if you've ever attended a show, there's moments where the actor is speaking and it's almost like everyone's heartbeat is going at the same time. Right. There's such a power in quiet and listening. And so what your role is, is to give them the opportunity to be quiet and and start to read, to get hooked into something. And then you'll sort of hear this sort of um, deep uh, sort of breathing happening. And I've actually had kids who've been reading for 20 minutes and then I'll call it, I'll say, okay, that's 20 minutes. And they'll like, look at me as if they've been in a totally different place for 20 minutes. Like they're, they're coming out of wherever they've been in the book. Like, Where am I? I was in the middle of this. So I think, It's the kind of thing you have to believe it's going to happen. And you have to expect that it's going to happen. And if you have uh, trouble the first couple of times, I think you go with as long as it can until it starts getting silly and then you stop. But the next day you go one minute longer and the next minute day you go one minute longer. That's how they do it in kindergarten, you know? How long are we going to read? And they do it for a minute and, and you'll go by a kindergarten room and in April, they'll say, we've read 10 minutes quietly today on their door. You know? <laughs> yes. so they've been building up to that. And if four and five-year-olds can sit quietly and read, then ninth and tenth graders can sit quietly and read. And it may be the only time that they're quiet at all during the day. And I think their brains actually begin to crave it. Like, in this world of distraction, it's kind of interesting when you're quiet. And, you know, one of the things that's so interesting, because I had a rowdy class, most of my classes were rowdy um, when they first came in, but training them to read silently was a skill that they, that I had to teach them. And you're right, we had to do a certain amount of minutes, then I had to stop. But I guess one of the things that I've come across, um, both in admin and as a teacher and as a coach, that there are administrators who look down on teachers who allow kids to read on in class, 
to solemnly read in class. And it sounds ridiculous as literacy teachers, but there are administrators who believe that kids should read at home and that in class they should do the work. So what do you tell teachers who are in a school um, where reading silently has been discouraged? How do you get an administrator to understand the research behind the need for students to not only read silently, but also in certain points for them to be read too, so they can hear the fluency? I think, I think there's a number of statistics that actually prove that independent reading, um, kids who read independently score higher on SAT and on the um, uh, NIA, uh, the, um, not NIAS, the uh, national tests that they give. Um, I think that statistic that shows that kids who choose to read independently will score higher also on SATs is the available. Um, I, I think it's on the nation's report card testing. Uh, the NAEP, sorry, N-A-E-P. Right. Um, I think also there is this idea that um, kids leave you. You have no more control over what they're doing. And, you know, homework is not something that's being done in the same way. Uh, and having a kid go off and read um, for class and then come in, it's kind of it, 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 for certain kids who go home to situations where they may be the um, caretaker, they may be the mother, they right. may be, um, you know, the, the breadwinner for their particular family. Exactly. So put that pressure on the kid and say, all right, now you have 15 pages or 30 pages to read of, you know, Hamlet or whatever else they're giving them. As opposed to uh, really going, hearing the reading in class and having an opportunity to discuss it, um, I do think uh, that uh, if we are going to make our kids readers, we have to put our money where our mouth is, and we have to insist on time that we have an opportunity to give kids a chance to practice what we're teaching them. You don't tell the kid to how to swim on the side of the pool and then say, okay, now jump in and swim when I'm not looking. You have to have the opportunity to watch them swim and talk to them and swim. So this is the same way. What we've done is we've taken reading as if it's an afterthought and that it's something that it takes time. And I think part of the problem also is we've put um, too many books into our curriculum that we want to have done rather than um, removing them and letting them have more choice over what they would like to read. So we stuff our filled with books, um, you know, three or, three or four a quarter so that we can get through all these books and cover the curriculum. Right. Not accomplishing the same thing. If this was, if what we were doing was working, we would not be in the situation in. It's not working, obviously. And the kids um, are going to need to be literate beyond the test. Yes. <laughs> and I think you just brought up a good point in that so many times we're trying to cover things that the kids are not going to get anyway. So you're right. We have to slow it down and, and we, we have to be, kids have to be literate beyond the test. You're so right. That's, that's so true. Now, as we talk about independent reading and you've talked about the importance of it and 
some of the issues that you might see with it. What's your advice to a teacher who is very old school in the sense of kids, I want you to read. Well, let me rephrase that. How do you change the mindset of teachers who feel like I still want the kids to read what I want them to read? In 10th grade, they must read Hamlet. They must read Night. They must read The Life of Pa. What, how, do you, how do you change the mindset of that teacher? How do you get that teacher to see what research is showing of what we know is to be best practices? Um. It's funny you mention that because I do I do know of situations what you're talking about uh, <laughs> teachers who insist on um, this is you know it's the scarlet letter and you have to read the scarlet letter otherwise you are not really a good well read person exactly <laughs> scarlet letter and here you're going to choke on it right <laughs> I, think, well, I think it has to be peer to peer I think it's the kind of thing that if you can hook a few. Um, the success they have will make it very obvious that um, the choice and uh, being able to be more literate and making um, and having these conversations that their students will score higher, that they will do, they will be more encouraged to participate, that they won't have as many classroom management problems. Um, I think it's the kind that their grades won't show failure rates. Um, if you have somebody who's willing to really uh, invest time in reading with kids, then kids will respond appropriately. And um, that the old school way of choking down the scarlet letter uh, will, word will get out. Um, remember, these are, kids are not, they are consumers in a way that um, other generations are not. They are marketed to. They have these choices. And uh, they're very vocal about them. And I think um, in a way that perhaps uh, other generations were not. And just sitting there and uh, being told uh, is not going to fly as much. And I think we have to be aware of that as um, these kids who can you know, maneuver technology in ways that um, a lot of teachers are not comfortable with, uh, it's going to definitely have an impact on, on uh, what's being taught in the classroom. What, so you brought up a good point about technology. You know, we live in an age where kids do not have to necessarily, in the old-fashioned sense, read a book. They can pull up an audio book. They can pull it up on YouTube. They can listen to a podcast where it's broken down. What are some tools that you have, you've used or you've seen used that are helping with um, helping kids read independently and helping them in choice in reading? Do you know of any for teachers to, to kind of look up? I think audiobooks are a, a good way for you to sell a particular book. I think it's very, uh, it's good to have kids sometimes hear a text. I think they actually say that your, it, your comprehension reading and listening increases about 70%. So yes. that audio is very good. I think um, that uh, having the kids actually um, use the technology to uh, share um, their reading with others um, in creating their own book trailers and creating their own interpretations. Um, there's a lot of things that they can do digitally uh, to, you know, here's, 
here is a really great chapter in this book. I'm going to choose this painting to illustrate it. Let me explain why. And they can put the picture and do all sorts of diagrams on it. They can use it as a map walk. You can do, there's so many things that um, you can use technology for to enhance the reading experience. Um, but it also means you have to be comfortable with that in class. And um, that is a, a lot of teachers don't have that kind of comfort. And some of them might even say, well, it never works for me in class, or I don't ever, not everybody has the same thing. But I, I think it's um, the kind of uh, uh, growing um, field in the sense of how do we make this technology help the kids better? Um, but at the same time, um, I am reminded all the time that the people who created this technology knew how to read and write. And yes. that was basically what they had. They didn't have computers. They read, they were able to read and write and that's what made them create Apple and Microsoft and all that other stuff. Right. And I guess one of the things that, you know, I think a lot of teachers sometimes are very hesitant to using technology is because for some teachers, when kids listen to books online, they feel like it's a cheating. It's cheating. It's almost like not good. It's not as good as you opening the book and reading it by yourself. But uh, what I found is that for my lower level readers, them being able to listen to the book as they read along is invaluable. It helps them so much because they can hear the voices, they can imagine the scenes, and they they almost feel like they're cheating, but in reality, they're almost doing double the work because they're they're getting the traditional reading of the book, but they're also getting these voices and this animation that they so desperately need. Now, for administrators, so let's flip the switch and let's talk about independent choice and independent reading, I'm sorry, and choice. How can an administrator foster this love in their teachers? How can they make it okay for their teachers to feel like it's okay to give up that control and allow students to choose or to make sure that students are reading meaningfully in class? How do administrators support on the other side of the spectrum? Well, I think they have to give permission, you know, and also support them by what do you need for me to do to help you achieve this? What can I do for you? I mean, can we have some discussions about books that work really well in your classroom? Can we uh, look to see how we can share books? Can we look to see um, what you would like to add or take away? Can we look to see um, what research is out there to support you? Um, and then uh, look to see uh, what kind of advice we can get from the people who are doing this very well. I mean, I, I mentioned that there are Penny Kettle videos, and I think uh, there are things that you can read and uh, see online that you can uh, use in sort of teacher training so that they will feel like it's not um, just something that people sort of uh, say will work, but they can see if it does work. And then you can come in and, and kind of support them and, uh, and even model it if you have to. Right. Go in and say, all right, um, I'll do some conferences with your kids. You start at that end, I'll start at this end. And uh, kind of give them a sense of confidence that what they're doing and why they're doing it is, uh, is a good thing. And it's the kind of thing that teachers should be doing. I think that's such an important part of embracing this whole movement because if teachers aren't comfortable administrator 
I'm sorry, if administrators aren't comfortable or don't know, teachers will never be comfortable enough to show to do these things because they'll feel like they'll be dinged when they come in for evaluations. Um, can you talk to us, certainly not least, but can you talk to us a little bit about what are some of the things that you guys are doing in your district in Connecticut that's helping with this movement? Are there some district level things? Are there some school level things? What are some things that you're doing? Or if you're not doing some things that you want them to be doing to move this movement of, I want to say it's, it's almost like a movement back to the, almost for um, testing. So what are some of the things that you would want to see done? Well, one of the things I did do is when we first started doing this, I started the school year by asking kids what kind of a reader they thought they were. Mm. Um, We took a lot of, uh, we used um, a Google form, and this was at the middle school level, grades 7 and 8. And we asked the same question later in June. And we asked them, you know, are you a good reader? And then we asked the exact same thing at the end. And what we noticed was that kids actually saw themselves as better readers because of what they were doing um, in uh, in the classroom when they had independent reading in the SSR. So um, I have I had um, a number of uh, surveys that I would give kids and and. Um, Kelly had, uh, I think at one point we had 71% of our kids in West Haven had said that they were a better reader um, this year, that SSR had made them a better reader. And um, what was the most interesting was I had a number of teachers who would also read at the same time that the kids were reading. They say to me, I'm a better reader, you know. I never used to be able to get through these books, and now I'm getting through them, or they would pick up books that kids had told them to read. So what ended up happening was um, if you, uh, one of the other interesting thing that I noticed when we gave our survey was that um, we had, and this was in grades um, seven and eight, that about 57% of them shared what they read with their friends, but 54% shared what they read with their parents and their relatives. Oh, wow. I think that was amazing. I think we were like shocked at that statistic. So I think one of the things that's come out of this is the need to really have that home connection um, and say to the parents, look, talk about what they're reading. Um, Read with them. Put books in the house. These are all important ways for them to, um, you know, build uh, their stamina or build their interest in reading. Um, it was it was when uh, so I had um, at the beginning in June in September. Um, I asked the how many kids thought reading was fun, and in September, um, out of the seventh and eighth grade, uh, I had twenty two percent of them say it was usually fun. By mm. June, that had gone to thirty two percent. Um, as opposed to, and more kids came out of the, it's never fun. <laughs> so from 25% to 4%, it, we had kids who said it was never fun. So I'm never going to convince a hundred percent, but at the same time, I think I shifted everybody at least 10% more towards being a better reader. And if perception is reality, 
and at that age, in seventh and eighth grade, perception is reality, then I know that the kids are better readers because of what we did. So that was in, that was uh, between 2014 and 15. Oh, wow. And that's such a simple solution, a survey. And many times we're so um, amped up with back to school and all these different things. But a survey on what you like to read or, you know, you as a reader, it'll give you invaluable. Right. Just, am I, are yeah. you a good reader? And then just ask the same question later. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids will tell you. I mean, they're very honest. Trust me. Yes. <laughs> they will. And they know. Yeah. And it's also how they felt that particular day. But, I mean, it is, it is critical for them to actually sit back and think about themselves. I mean, we assign them these books, but we never really explain why these are so critical. And as they get to read more, then they're more likely to be more comfortable in noticing the same kinds of things in, you know, Big Nate are in the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's some kind of polyphemus in Big Nate. There is some big bully in the story. And so when you're reading the Odyssey, again, you can pull out because it is every story. Right. Every story is the Wicked Witch. The Wicked Witch is in every story. Right, right. The Claus is in every story. Yeah. So whatever is in those, and, and once you get kids to see these patterns, and once then they can read any book and really sort of anticipate how the author is going to change that pattern or make that pattern different. And once you get them to do that, you're getting them to notice author's style. Yeah, <laughs> author's purpose. Like the things that we're supposed to be doing. The author's purpose and them not understanding that question at all. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I have found is that when people go through and when people are doing this and when people are, hold on one second, I don't know what happened. Like music is randomly playing. Hold on. Okay. Um, so, and when you do these type of things, I think it helps everybody feel more comfortable. Because what I I used to do a little bit something similar, but I would talk to them about my about my reading style and what I like to read and why I like to read it and how I figured that out. So it's just so it's so simple, but yet it's so profound. It is. And have them ask other people how they read. What do they like to read? Right. Let me ask you this. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, this is something that is, is for many of us who have taught English or who have read a lot on how to make students more literate. What if you could do one thing that would change that would help transform students into authentic readers, what would you do? Just one thing. Where would we get our most bang for our buck? And I say we, I mean school districts, teachers, parents. What can we do? Talk to the kid. Oh. It's just a simple talk to the kid. And again, three minutes, four minutes. Just sit and talk to the kid. You don't get to every kid every day. You just give 10 minutes of your day is going to be spent doing that. That could be the time when everybody else is doing X, you know, and you're going to get to three kids. 
talk to the kids. It's that simple. I, this has been a great talk, guys. And what you're going to find is that we are, Colette is a powerhouse of resources, of information. Um, you can find her. Tell them where they can find you, Colette. I'm on uh, usedbooksinclass.com, which is a WordPress site. Yes. And she has a lot of great articles. Um, they really, uh, the ones that I've read are really focused on literacy and English, just teaching English. And it's so reflective. So you guys, her web, um, her blog will be in the show notes. In addition, are you, are you on social media? I know you're on Twitter. Tell them your Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is at th. Uh, it's at teachcmd56. Okay. So follow her on Twitter. Go to her blog. In the show notes, I'm going to put links to all of that. And I want you guys to do us a favor. When, after you listen to this podcast, I want you to tell us in the show notes, what is the number one thing that you think that we can do to make students more authentic, better um, more authentic readers. So answer that question. Join us next week. Next week we'll be talking about how to implement Genius Hour in the classroom. Um, welcome back to season two and we're ready. Colette, just hold on for one second. <laughs> <laughs>